just for a minute, I want to pick up on, on uh, that theme of, of shame. I was reading recently a book uh, called How to Inhabit Time. And uh, the gentleman was talking about how shame has a way of keeping us from living in the present and living into the future that God has for us. You know, uh, shame is, is us um, basically being in suspended animation over something that has come into our lives, a willing sin or something that maybe even uh, was foisted upon us, and, and we seem to lose power. Uh, we seem to lose the ability to move forward. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this wonderful message. It's the truth that whatever our past, whatever ever shameful sin and thing that we have experienced, that we're bogged down and mired in, that we can come and give it to Jesus. And he frees us. He takes that yoke and that burden, and we don't have to carry it anymore. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a radical, wonderful, life-freeing life-altering message that allows us now to live in freedom. Freedom from shame and burdens and guilt. And we need to live that way. One of the great ministries uh, that we're a part of in some ways that's right here in our community is the Arkansas Baptist Ranch. And uh, they help families that are stuck in the mire of all kinds of things. And uh, uh, Brandy Urosity is going to come now. She's the director of the, of the ranch, and she is, of course, one of our church members. And I wanted to allow her just some time to, to update us on uh, the ministry of the Arkansas Baptist Ranch. Well, good morning, and thank you. Thank you for your support. And we want to share with you what's happening with Arkansas Baptists across the state of Arkansas. This would not be made possible without our small churches who love us and support us to no end. Um, we are the Arkansas Baptist Children and Family Ministries. That doesn't only encompass the child, that encompasses the family as a complete whole. Our goal is to build and strengthen and restore Arkansas families for God's glory. So that means not only the child, we support the family as a whole. Next slide. If you look here, we have six different ministries under our umbrella that you guys are helping support. The one that I and most partial to, of course, is the Arkansas Baptist Ranch. It's there on the end. But what makes our job easier is we now have Living Well Counseling, where we have a professional counselor on site that works with our children and families. We also have connected foster care and adoptions. So all of our homes that we have on the campus are open foster homes, but we do that. They don't have to go through the state. They get to go through our organization, our ministry, where we open these foster homes and we look for Christian people that want to do this. And then also we have adoptions. Adoptions don't only happen with DHS. We do do private infant adoptions. Then we have our desired Haven Family Care. That is an amazing program. We serve children, moms, children's and moms. So when a mom is suffering or recovering from addiction, they're gonna to go to rehab. But what happens to their kids when they're usually in rehab? They're usually with a family member or they're in DHS custody. So once the mom will finish her rehab, she can apply for our desired family care home. And we wrap around her. She can move into the home. That does not cost her any money. We assign her an advocate that's going to do Bible studies with her and a life plan with her to help her get her children back. Then we have our Homes for Children in Monticello. 
Um, they're very similar to us at the ranch. And then we also have Explorers Academy. That is gonna open this summer in Markham Street. And that is a trauma-informed daycare. And that's going to serve foster children in Pulaski County. Next slide. So with our Living Well Counseling, we are popping up all over the state. And it has been so beautiful to watch how we have Christian counselors seeing our families. And it doesn't matter if you have health insurance or not. That's one of the big kickers for a lot of people that uh, need therapy, but they won't go because they can't afford it. Well, our churches are meeting that need. Next slide. So last year, our Living Well Counseling, they had 14,054 counseling sessions that were provided. We added 15 new locations and 20 new, 26 new counselors, and we're adding constantly to that program. Next slide. So here we have our home at Monticello. If you've not been there, you should go if you're ever in that part of the state. If you notice that Southern Arkansas, it's so hard to provide services for children and families in that part of the state. Um, and then it's a huge need. But at our campus in Monticello, we have Living Well Counseling. We have Connected Foster Care. We're adding our family care home to our campus in Monticello. And we're opening Explorers Academy on that campus. Because in that community, there's such a need for resources. Next slide. Last year, in our home in Monticello, 23 children were served. That's through the foster care system. And 14 were reunified with family. Next slide. So this is the place that I'm most partial to. And it's right here in our backyard. If you've not been there, please come and visit. Um, we have kids running around like crazy all the time. Uh, my building maintenance guy, during the snow, he came out and was helping us clean the parking lots, and we were sledding. And the, he said, Brandy, this is the most amazing place. This is a safe place for these kids. We had the time of our life going up and down the hill. And I want you to know those kids played outside for a little over eight hours off and on, going in and getting drinks and food and then coming back out and playing. And Matt, he even videoed me going down the hill with the kids but it's just such an amazing place. Next slide. So if you look here at this slide, I know the pictures aren't that great. We love to celebrate. Um, we have a volunteer group that come out of Fayetteville, and we get to go trout fishing every year. That fishing trip helped lead to a salvation. And then if you notice the other picture, we have an adoption that we got to celebrate. Birthday parties are a huge thing. Um, then we have our uh, horse program, which I'm very partial to as well. And it's just amazing because kids come in with their walls built so high, and once they get involved in our horse program, those walls come down, and it's amazing. And we're also able to share the gospel with them through this process. Next slide. So this last year at the ranch, we had 31 children that we served, seven were reunified, and five children were moved to pre-adoptive homes. We don't have our salvations up there, but we had two salvations of children and one of a mom. And that story is so sweet. 
we had this family that came in to us. It was over, now it's been 11 months. And when the mom came in and the kids the first day, they were looking down at the ground. They were not believers. And through the process, DHS let us start unsupervised visits, but with us supervising them. That means DHS wasn't, we were. And so we were able to share the gospel with this mom. Over this nine-month process while they were with us, on the day that the kids were reunified, the week before, we had a salvation. The day they were reunified, we had a baptism. We had a reunification. And the mom that afternoon, Matt and I dropped their stuff off in our family care home in Springdale. And I told the mom, I said, hey, I got the kids' stuff dropped off. And she said, Brady, I am ready. I said, you are ready for what? She said, I'm ready to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That was just the most precious moment ever. And then right before Christmas, I got to drive over to Fayetteville and watch her be baptized. So she's going to be a missionary for her family who they're not Christians. So her 11-year-old is the spiritual leader in that home. So you're never too young to be the spiritual leader in your home. Next slide. So here we have our connected foster care and adoptions. Like I was telling you guys, all of our families are foster homes. So what we do is we recruit, train, and we do the home studies for foster families. So you're not going through the state. And then we assign you a case manager that is going to be the liaison between you and DHS. We make the process so much easier, but it is a spiritual warfare, and it is a spiritual battleground, and it is tough, but it is so rewarding. Next slide. So last year, 336 children were cared for in connected foster homes across the state through the Baptist. 100 families were reunified, and 19 commitments to Christ were made. That's pretty amazing. Next slide. So with our desired family care home, we are able to work with them at the ranch level. So like the mom I was telling you guys about that made the commitment and accepted Jesus Christ. When they came to us, it was her and her children facing this big life event alone. She was running a chicken farm by herself. And she came to me, she said, Brandy, I can't do this no more. She had sold her tractor, so she's picking up all these dead chickens and carrying them out of the chicken house with five-gallon buckets. She came to visit us at the ranch to see her children. A rainstorm came through, flooded her houses, killed all of her chickens. She calls me in tears. She's like, Brandy, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have no money. I want my children back, and I'm trying. I said, hey you're a candidate for a family care home. She's like, what are you talking about? So I helped her sign up. She moved into our family care home. We helped her get a realtor who sold her home. And so they're still at our family care home to this day. So once she moved into our family care home, we found her an advocate because she was facing all these trials alone. And so that advocate met with her weekly. They did a Bible study and they did a life goal plan which has helped her get her children back. They are no longer in DHS custody, and they are going to church every Sunday. And you can see how God is changing their life. It's not just the talk. It's when you meet them, you know that God was pursuing them before they ever got to the ranch as a family as a whole. Next slide. 
So, Desired Haven last year, 40 families were served, 41 families were served through family care homes and Desired Haven communities. 121 children were served. Four family care mothers graduated the program. So once they graduate the program, they're moving out into the community, but they're not alone. Once they move out into the community, we have community advocates from our churches that are walking alongside them. Next slide. So here's a map, and these are all of our locations. We do have way more living well counseling locations that are on this map that are that we have that aren't on this map because we continue adding sites. I got a call the other day from one of our college students. He was at the ranch for five years. He doesn't have family other than the family he acquired while he was at the ranch. And he said, hey, Brandy, did you know that they're adding a living well counseling site to Williams Baptist? I said, no, Will. He said, that's amazing because I need counseling. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I've been telling you that for years. But, you know, this is amazing. And these are the sites that we, we have, and there's many more. But they would not be made possible without you guys. And we're always looking for volunteers, whether you want to volunteer and help at the ranch, whether you want to help and be an advocate with our family care homes. There's so many ways that you guys can serve and be involved. And it's one of those things where we all get in our comfort zone and we don't want to get out. We don't want to get our hands dirty in someone else's dirty business. But that's not what God's called us to do. He's called us to serve. And you guys are an amazing church and you guys have been long supporters of us. So we want to thank you. Thank you so much for loving us and supporting us throughout the years. Oh, I did forget to tell you guys, I do have some of our outlooks on the back table, and there are some different goodies, so please feel to grab them on your way out. All right. Thank you, Brandy. Uh, Brandy does a great job out at the ranch, uh, and uh, we, we do various things supporting them, uh, of course, financially, but also, I'll tell you, we've got one coming up here, uh, April, I think the date is 30th. It's going to be a Sunday afternoon. We're going to have a little ranch roundup, and we're going to go, and, and we're going to take people and do something that will test to see if you're really a Christian or not. We're going we're to work cows. <laughs> we're going to work cattle and uh, do some of that, and uh, so we're going to be trying to recruit some folks um, going to have a hamburger cookout and just a, a good time. And if you've never been to the ranch, and if you don't want to work cows, that's fine. I'm sure we'll arrange for someone to give you a tour of the ranch and things like that. So uh, put that on your calendar to be a part and continue to pray for the Arkansas Baptist Ranch. And uh, we appreciate y'all sharing. Philippians chapter 2 today, uh, we want to, um, you know, the, the title for the message today is The Christian Superpower. And Sheila said, you wake up in a new world every day, don't you? <laughs> Yeah, it's dangerous to, uh, to title your sermon after a sleepless night, but that's what I came up with. You know, for nearly 100 years, uh, millions of people in America and around the world have been entertained and enamored by DC Comics superheroes. I mean, these things continue to make movies and make money, and, and people are fascinated by these superheroes. Of course, humans uh, uh, ages old, uh, have told mythological stories about great heroes and, and uh, endowed with superhuman strength and things like that. How could you not love the story of a nerd in a newsroom 
who can duck into a phone booth. Children, a phone booth is before cell phones. You know, they have these little booths. You can go and drop your dime and, and uh, uh, make a phone call. This nerd in the newsroom could duck into a phone booth and come out wearing uh, blue and red tights and a cape, you know, and he could save the world. He could leap tall buildings in a single bound. He, he could fly faster than a speeding bullet and thwart all of the evil. Or who doesn't love the endless gadgets and technology of, of Batman, you know, the, the uh, billionaire by day who puts his safety and security on the line to go out at night and to fight against the darkness. One of the most disappointing superheroes has to be Batman sidekick Robin, right? Have you ever thought about that one? And I thought about it. R Robin has no superpowers, I even looked it up on DC. There's a, there's a website for people that are into this. I looked it up, and, and on occasion, Robin would have a superpower that was exuded. But by and large, here's what they say about Batman's sidekick, the superhero, Robin. He relies on his keen intellect and physical fitness. And I was like, that's not supernatural. That's not a superpower. But, but he does this to assist the one, you know, with the superpowers Batman and, and out with the bad guys. And honestly, I probably if Christians are like a superhero, it's probably going to be more like Robin. Not that we're all that physically fit, but actually in the book of Philippians, one of the things we see over and over is for Christians to have a certain mind, to have a keen intellect sharpened such that we can assist the real superhero, that is Jesus have certain habits of mind that we're going to see today. There was a survey asked and spread abroad. If you could have one supernatural power, what would it be? How about you? What would yours be? If you could have one supernatural or superhuman strength, what would it be? Flying? Yeah, that's got to be great, right? Anybody else? Uh. <laughs> Actually, children, listen to this. This is a common interview question that is asked today. What is your superpower? Or what would you have it to be? So in this survey, people answered. And you know what the top answer was? The ability to heal. The ability to heal. The power to heal. And I thought, that's great. And I thought about also, what if actually Christians have been afforded this great power to bring healing to the world, not in a medical or miraculous sense necessarily, though I think God does do that. We're studying the spiritual gifts on Wednesday nights, and we're going to come up on that one. But what if in a more general sense, God has given power to us, availed to us his power to bring and unleash healing in this world? I would argue that that is exactly what God wants his church to do, is to be part of unleashing a tidal wave of supernatural power and goodness to change the world, to beat back the powers of darkness, to bring goodness and godliness and grace and redemption and restoration to people in places that are in trouble, to bring healing. So let's read about the supernatural powers or the Christian's superpowers as I've envisioned them from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Why don't you stand this morning, stand this morning, stretch your legs and, and let's in doing so, give attention to what the Word of God says first and foremost. 
Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not... Merely look out for your own personal interests, but have, but have also the interests of others. Let's bow together. Father, I pray that you would make your word alive today, that we might see things that we've never seen, that we would be impacted to go out and to be changed, to bring your power and goodness to this world. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing that I want you to see in this passage today is the supernatural source of the Christian's power. The supernatural source of the Christian's superpower, if you will. Verse 1 actually begins with an important little word, therefore. Therefore, a connecting word that says, you know, this is all built. Everything I'm going to say here is built on what I've already said. And so we always want to look back and say, what is the flow of the argument? What is the case he is making? What is this instruction in Philippians 2 verses 1 through 18 building on? I think it's looking back primarily at verse 27 that says, you live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live a life that is so infused with the gospel that makes Jesus look big, that helps the world to see what Christians and Christianity is really all about. But then we looked at last week how in verses 28 through 30, he begins to unravel this this challenging piece about how we are granted by God or given this gift, this grace actually of suffering. And he says, and in that, do not be afraid. Do not be panicked by fear and overcome by your emotions in the middle of it, but stand firm. Hey, listen, to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to endure The overwhelming onslaught of the darkness aimed at us personally and at the church and at Christians that we might sometimes call persecution. It takes supernatural power. That is not normal for us to have our very lives threatened and to be able to stand fearless in that day. So there is, I think, a supernatural power that we must avail ourselves of. That's what he's uh, taught about to the Philippian church in chapter one. And now I think he begins to show us to unveil the secrets. One of the great things about these superhero movies is when these individuals have this power and they're just discovering it. All of a sudden, you know, Superman realizes the things that he can do. And there needs to be a similar discovery in our lives too, where the secret powers that God wants to give us and flow through us become a part of our lives, and we become aware of them. So Paul then begins, I think that's what's happening here in Philippians 2, say verses 1 through 4. He's unveiling the secrets and the source of the Christian's supernatural power. And here's the way I would package them. It's the grace of Christ. The supernatural source that we have to live this way that he's calling us to live is the grace of Jesus Christ that has been experienced in our hearts and souls and lives the manifold grace of Christ to us 
as his beloved. And so he says with these tentative statements, if there is for you any encouragement in Christ. That is, have you experienced this outside source of strength that has come into your life that helps you to have courage? If you are a Christian, you've experienced this. You've gone from, like we were talking about earlier, being overcome by a sense of sinfulness, unworthiness, and shame. We're not right with God. We're alienated from God. But all of a sudden, the gospel comes to us, and we realize that God does accept us just as we are. He takes us in all of our filth if we're willing to repent and call sin, sin, and just say, I have nothing to bring other than myself. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that you don't have to be worthy to be saved. It's that you come unworthy, warts and dirt and all. And he saves you and changes you and makes you something different. He adopts you into his family. And man, that that's, brings strength to know that we're accepted and beloved by God. And so he says that there's any encouragement in Christ. And then he begins to lay out some other things that I think we don't need to dissect, like looking at the individual ingredients of a recipe, but instead that we need to taste as a sumptuous dish. Not like lines of poetry that we need to count out the beats and and examine every word, but that we need to hear the beauty of in our ears this encouragement in Christ. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of his love, that is, if you have ever been comforted by the love of Christ, man, you've got something powerful there. You have tasted and seen something good. If any fellowship of the spirit, knowing that we have the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God living in us, and he walks with us, he guides us, he counsels us. He brings us into the fellowship of the eternal God. If you've sensed the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in your life, you've experienced the supernatural power of God. And he says this, if any affection and compassion, if any mercies, do you hear these words? Encouragement, consolation and comfort, fellowship, that is partnership, affection or love and compassion. Now listen, Those are things that you feel. There's something that happens maybe in the right side of our brain. It's not the logical side. It's the side that is highly personal. Man, if you have that, you have experienced something wonderful, something the entire world needs. But there is this tentative, if there is any of that. Hey, if you're a Christian here today, is that an adequate, at least, summary of the gospel and salvation? Is that true? Say amen. If you have ever experienced the encouragement, I, hey, I've watched, I've watched the tears flow as someone comes to accept and receive the grace and the love of Christ. And it's been changed by the Spirit. I've seen it. I've tasted it. And I hope you have too, if you haven't. You can. That is what the gospel is. It's a message that God has his arms open wide. We were singing about that today. And some of you guys, you know, you're a little bit macho. You're kind of, I don't know about this, running to his open arms. There's a father saying, come 
home. Here is the one who loves you most of all saying, come home, come home. So the gospel is this powerful experience of God's grace and Christ's grace coming to us. And it's the best thing that could ever be. And so that is the supernatural source. That is the fulcrum of the lever that he's now going to push upon. As he said, if these things have been yours and you've tasted and seen them and experienced them, then he's going to give us a follow-up. This should be the outflow of that. And here in the passage, I want you to see Paul's sincere plea to complete another's joy. Paul's sincere plea to complete In fact, his joy. And so in a gentle and very personal way, Paul begins to offer them some instruction and correction in the church because something is amiss in the church at Philippi. Paul's joy cannot be what he hopes it would be because something is wrong in this church that he founded and loves. He says, make my joy complete. If you love me, and these people love Paul, He was the beloved founding pastor of this church. He says, if you love me, man, my joy is not where it should be because I know that you are in a bad place. I think that is the hint here. Make my joy complete. Make my joy full by doing and being what it is that God has called you to be. I tell you one thing that emerges from this idea of another making our joy complete or full is that we understand that joy is something that happens relationally. Joy, if you're a note taker, you should jot that down. Joy is relational. Joy is relational. In other words, people's lack of joy impacts us when we encounter them. We were talking about how when the sun started shining after all of that snow and ice. Man, people were different. People were happier. Y'all don't look it now, but you were happier just a few minutes ago. You know, and then when someone else is happy, you're happy. Their smile impacts you. Joy is relational. I don't know if I've given you, we've talked a lot about joy. Man, I've been harping on this stuff since uh, the 1st of January. Have I given you a definition of joy? Do you have one? Let me give you one. It's helpful. Joy is our soul's delight in a relationship with God and others. Joy uh, joy is our soul delighting in a right relationship with God and with others. And so when that relationship is wrong, it's broken either with God or others, joy will be diminished. It will be leaking out. It will not be what it should be. You know this, right? You come in, you're looking forward to coming home at the end of a day or, or, or uh, ladies, you've been out shopping uh, on Saturday and you're hoping that you're going to come home to a clean house because you've left the boys there to clean the house. It ain't happening, you know, but you come home and you're just looking forward to seeing your family and you come in and it's, <clears throat> it's silent treatment. You can tell something is wrong and it changes you. It changes you. Joy is relational. So we need to get it right in our relationship with God because really, ultimately, that is the key source. But listen, Paul was probably about as close to Jesus as any person could be, I suspect. He seems like a spiritual giant. And here he is saying, when your joy is absent, church, mine is incomplete. It has a horizontal aspect to it. Other people are impacted by our lack of joy or our having joy. 
And so relational, congregational unity is what Paul is calling them to. He's beginning to hint around. He said, okay, and make my joy complete by getting this right. Unity in the church, Jesus says, is one of the key ways people will know that we're his disciples. And so I think that the corollary to that is to say this, where there's not joy, you're not going to look like the disciples of Jesus. Or you're going to make Jesus look really bad. You're not living, we are not living a gospel-worthy life when unity among the brethren is not present. We need, you know, here's the thing. The gospel is a message of peace and reconciliation, first of all with God and then with others. And when we're not living in that, not in our closest relationships and in our relationships in the church, we're not living gospel-worthy lives, period. That's just the truth. And so Paul says, man, help make my joy complete by getting rid of the dissensions and factions in the church. Listen, uh, The American church has such a formulaic mind, and I'm going to encompass us in that mindset. We have this formulaic mind that if we do certain things, we abide by um, certain church growth principles. If we get the programs right, if we get everything just at the right time in the flow of our services, and we do this for this group, and we do that for that group, and we have, uh, you know, our social media right, and you get all of these pieces right, I think we think that if we check all of those boxes, man, our church is going to flourish and grow. But I'll tell you this. We can have all of the organization, right? We can be doing the latest and greatest, most cutting edge. We can have the best curriculum. We can have the best teachers. We can have all of that stuff. But if there is not personal warmth and love and fellowship that is deep and beautiful and Christ-like, We will be as nothing. The church will not grow. In fact, it will shrink. If we don't get the relational piece right, a church should be full of joy and warmth because our relationships are right between God and with one another. And listen, (laughs) we got to get this right. Before we get all the rest right, we got to get this right. He says, make my joy complete. And so he gives some steps, some things that you should, they should aim at to multiply this, this relational joy and Christ-like warmth and love and fellowship in the church. Here's what he says. He gives kind of a laundry list of things. I won't go one by one through them in excruciating detail. But he says, get on the same page. Have the same mind. Be of one mind. And it's great when you're singing off the same page. When everybody, it doesn't mean we all have to have the same opinion about what to do about everything, but we're on the same page. We're on the same team, and we know that. We're not coming at it trying to combat one another, but we're on the same team. So be of one mind, he says. Have the same attitude. What does that look like? I've been thinking about that. What does it look like? What's he calling us to, to be of the same mind? Well, a little bit later here, he says, have the same attitude. You see, if everybody has the same mindset and attitude, which is, I'm going to talk about what that looks like here in just a minute. But if we all have this, man, things are going to work right. So he elaborates a little bit. Have the same mindset. Have the same kind of love. That doesn't mean, well, that person doesn't love me, so I'm not going to love them. Whatever they give to me, I'm giving back to them. That's not what it means. It's have the same love that Jesus had for you, for others. That's challenging. 
Amen? Let's be real. He says, you need to love like Jesus loves. Have the same kind of love that Jesus had. Have the same kind of fellowship in the spirit, in the church that you have with Christ. All right? And have the same purpose. So we're united in purpose. We're all on the same page, same mindset, same mentality, same attitudes, same love, same fellowship of the spirit. Mm. Live your life abounding in the grace of Christ. Don't just receive it, but give it. Really, that's what's in view here. Quickly, here's what the Christian superpower is. You know, the preacher's gift is to say in 40 minutes what you could say in 30 seconds, right? That's what, that's what preachers do. Let me go ahead and give you the superpower as I see it. The Christian superpower, because that's important for any superhero to know their superpower. The Christian superpower is the expression of joy-producing grace. It's the expression of joy-producing grace that comes from Jesus given out in fellowship in unity with one another. The Christian superpower is that we receive the grace of Christ and we express it, especially in the fellowship of the brethren through unity in the church. Still not clear? The Christian superpower is the beautiful grace that produces joy in us flipped outward and given to other people. The grace of God flowing through us in a thousand ways because we love them. We care about one another in the church. Funny thing about joy. You know, joy is, one of the books that I'm reading says that joy is, I think I've already told you this, it's the jet fuel of human motivation. It is the best, most purified motivator that there is anywhere joy. You can be motivated by fear, not a great motivator, though it'll get you to do something and often get you to do it in the wrong way. All kinds of things can motivate us, but joy, I think this is true, is the greatest motivator of anything and everything. One of the quotes that I read this week says, dropping joy levels create risk in our lives. Many moral failures, leadership failures can be traced to decline in joy in our teams, marriages, families, and I would add in our church. When joy is not present, what's going to motivate you to keep going? Fear, sense of duty. Though, though you know, sometimes when joy is low, you're, you're willing to take any kind of fuel, right, to stay on the right track. But we need to check ourselves and just say, do we have this? Paul says, man, get back to producing joy in the church. Help fill up my joy tank, Paul says. Because if you're doing that, I know that joy will abound in the church at Philippi. Last thing, we need the secrets of maintaining the Christian's superpower. What are the secrets then to maintaining this flow of grace, living out of the grace of Christ expressed to others, such that it produces joy, not just in us, but in others. You know, all superheroes have a thing, right? They got the cape. They got the, the, the bat belt. You know, they got the thing. What's the Christian's thing? Huh? Wonder Twins. Did y'all ever see that one, the Wonder Twins? They got the fist bump. When, when they fist bump, they're able to express their superpowers. All superheroes have a thing. What is the Christian's thing? Verses three and four. I think give us two things. It gives us the thing, 
that produces what we're after, the superpower. And I think it also shows us the Christian's kryptonite. Y'all know kryptonite. It's what uh, dismantles Superman's powers. I really don't watch superhero stuff that much. It's just the theme, all right? Here you go. Quite simply, here it is. The thing, the secret of the Christian superpower is humility. That's the thing. That's the secret to having Christian superpower. And the kryptonite, well, it's pride. It's some variant of pride. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. I need to go through this pretty quickly. Thankfully, I'm going to come right back to it next week. And he's going to continue this argument about humility and getting rid of pride by showing us the beautiful example of Jesus. But look at what he says. Here you go. It's the secret and it's the kryptonite. You don't want the kryptonite. You don't want this in your life. You want to have access to the thing that you need. He says, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Don't look out merely for your interests, but what? Look out for the interests of others. There are various, there are several different varieties of what we would call pride. The word pride actually is not here. But we can get some ideas about what this kryptonite could look like in a Christian's life. It's a relationship killer. It's a grace buster. It's a joy smasher. The first one is selfishness. Selfishness is living a life that is worried about consuming, and it it has one object, and that is me. My good, my best, my everything, my gain is the ultimate goal of my life. Man, it's a narcissist mindset. It's all about me. Everything in life, even that has nothing to do with you, is about you somehow. He says, don't be selfish. He said, watch out. Another variety of pride is just vain conceit. Vain conceit, not sure exactly what that is, but I think here's what it probably is. It's doing even the right things to make me look good. I might even do the right things, the good things, the Christian things, but it's from a wrong motive. It's for me. It's for my vanity. It's for my ego. It's to build me up instead of actually looking out for others. So we can do things in the church and as Christians, the right things in the wrong way, wrong motives, and what it does is effectively kills joy. We get no real lasting joy from it. We harm others. You know what this looks like, right? Or what it sounds like? Selfishness and, and, and vain conceit. How do, you, how do you spot this in your life or someone else's life? Well, you listen. Well, what I want... As if what you want is the only thing or the most important thing, or even me as a pastor. As if what I want is ipso facto the thing, right? What I want, well, I actually prefer what I like. My preference is, am I getting loud and rowdy here? Okay. I don't mean to. It's probably best that I just look, point this all towards myself. But I got to say this one. I go to church because I get out of it or I don't get out of it. Now, listen, 
When you come to church, you should get something out of it. I mean, there should be things that are good happening. The grace of Christ should be flowing. But that's not the only thing. In fact, I would say if it is the primary reason, you are missing the best blessing and the purpose altogether. And maybe you're in grave danger of being a joy killer because you've exalted yourself as the main thing in church. And I don't think that we are ever to be the main thing. Christ is. So Paul says the more excellent way. Paul didn't get this rowdy. But he did say, watch out for this. Watch out for this way of operating and living your life that kills joy. That's the kryptonite. Here is the thing. It's the Christian's cape. It's his special belt. It's her Wonder Woman lariat and bracelets. I really did watch a lot of this stuff, didn't I? Humility. The more excellent way, the way to live your life, the way to think and then operate out of that mindset is humility. Man, we're, out, we're really out of time. What is humility? What do you think? I, I should have you all just turn to your neighbor and take too long and just tell them what you think humility is. There's, we think humility is just thinking poorly of ourselves. Maybe, maybe here's how we come at humility. Well, let me think about how I really am and then I'm just going to kick it down a little notch. So I'll only talk about three three quarters of my attainments or whatever. So I'm going to diminish it just a little bit. No, that's not humility. Humility is not thinking of yourself poorly. It's not walking around with sackcloth and ashes as if you're the worst human being that ever lived. It's not that. Humility is actually, I love this. Andrew Murray's got a book on humility. You should get it. And and so many good things there and and a depth that I've never read before about humility. He says, humility isn't actually a virtue. It's the soil in which all other Christian virtues grow. It's a a heart condition. It's a mindset. Humility is a certain way of thinking and being. Here's what he ultimately says. Humility is not low self-esteem. It's not a lack of confidence. Rather, the humble one can actually walk in confidence as an empty vessel able to be filled and used by God. Here's your definition of humility that, to me, is the best I've ever read. came from Andrew Murray. Humility is a personal willingness to be an empty vessel, prepared and ready to be used by God for his will and his purposes towards the world and others that he created and loved. That was an aha for me because when I think of humility, when someone says be humble, I think that means, well, I need to talk nicer to my spouse. I need to be a little more gentle before I whip my children. Things like that, right? Humble is, well, I'll smile a little more. We, we, we really tend to think about how we talk to or interrelate with others. When first of all, actually, to humble ourselves begins with a proper posture before God. It's getting that relationship right. And listen, nobody has a right, right to be proud or arrogant before God. You are a creature and I am a creature created by God. We are beloved dust. That's what we are. We have no right to be arrogant before God. And so we come to God and say, man, you've created me for a purpose, God. And I'm sure it's not to exalt myself. What is the purpose? What do you have for me? 
And, and we open our hearts wide to say, I want to be a vessel used by you. That's where humility starts. It's being an open vessel, ready and prepared to be used by God. And then we realize that his primary use for us is to show forth his grace and kindness and goodness towards the world and others he created because he loves them. Are you ready to do that? That's humility. It's humble before God. Say, use me, God. And then we realize that he wants to use us to bring joy to the world, to bring joy to others, to come into right relationships. And so that's probably a good parking place for this sermon. Till next week where we'll pick up on humility and the humility of Christ. It's a godly thing. It's who God is. Jesus was heaven's humility come to earth in the form of a man. How do we humble ourselves? What are we supposed to do? Is anybody, is it, does anybody know how to leave this sermon and, and start doing stuff? Maybe, maybe the Spirit's spoken to you about some things you need to do. But I think the primary thing we need to do is begin to pray that God would search us and show us arrogance and selfishness and vain conceit and these things that are kryptonite. They are thwarting the joy of our lives. They're killing relationships. Listen, if you're doing anything that's killing a relationship with others... You are diminishing the joy in the world and in your own heart. I think we need to pray and honestly begin to seek it. Do you know what humility is? I'm not asking for a definition. Here's what it is. Here's where it begins. It's actually a mindset. It's an attitude. It's a different way of being in the world. It's a mental thing, first and foremost. Over and over, Paul says, have this mind in you. It's your disposition, your attitude towards God and others. It's a habit of character. And listen, here is the great news. We change. People change. One of the primary ways that we change is the grace of God comes to us. We recognize our sin, our error, and we ask God, by the grace of God, set me on a different path. Help me. But it is not devoid of thinking and our will. I'll tell you one of the primary ways you change is by habits. By habits. It's the grace of God at work in us such that we actually become the kind of people who are able to obey God almost without thinking. So humility is cultivated in the heart and in the mind, but it's enforced and reinforced by godly habits. It's the grace of God working its way out in us. How many days does it take to start a new habit? Anybody know? Yeah, somewhere around a month. Three weeks to 30 days. What is today? You know what's amazing? You could be a totally different person by spring break. Seriously. By the time spring arrives, you could be a profoundly different Christian with a whole new set of attitudes, habits, that accord to the humility that Christ has called us to. Your relationships. I mean, how long does it take to break a relationship to, to 
just blow it up. I don't know how long it takes to say one word, but that's about how long. But God's grace is good. And we can change. We can become the kind of people that exude humility. We live in a state of humble readiness to be used by God for grace. To bring his supernatural power and goodness to a world that is being overcome in darkness. Would you bow with me today? The simple invitation today. Would you begin walking the path of humility by just asking God to make you a person of humility so that he could use you and infuse you with a supernatural grace and joy. If that's your heart today, just ask him. Father, today, as we come into this place, And as we roll around the words of Scripture in our mind, pray that you would do a searching work in our hearts and just begin to expose. Expose the pride, selfishness, and all of the ways that we're living for ourselves and we're killing joy in the congregation or in our relationships at home or at work. Expose those things, Lord, and and don't leave us there. We come not with a sense of shame, but a sense of repentance and asking you to bear those burdens too. We humble ourselves, Lord, before you today, knowing that that is the thing that we need. It is the thing that you require to bring your blessings into a life. It is the only proper posture before you, a holy, eternal, loving God. Help us, Lord, by your grace, as we submit to you in this thing. Make us a humble and happy people. We pray all of these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.